Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Detroit Bad Boys podcast and for continuing to support our little podcast here. And to just keep that hype train going, uh, I want to tell you a few ways that you can get in touch with the podcast and also where best to find this podcast. So the best place to find it is actually through iTunes. Subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Detroit Bad Boys. You'll find it there. New episodes are uploaded, of course, onto our website. This podcast, of course, part of the SB Nation site, DetroitBadBoys.com. New episodes posted every Monday. And you can also find it on Blog Talk Radio, again, just searching Detroit Bad Boys. And joining me this week, as they did last week, and if the Pistons keep playing like this, I think you two just have to join me every week to just keep this positive vibe going with the team. Uh, we'll start with Ben Gulker. Ben, how you doing? Doing great. Doing especially good because of uh, how, how well our Pistons are playing. So good to be with you guys again. Always doing better when the team's doing well. That's, that's right. And also joining us this week, as he did last week, is Sean Core. How you doing, Sean? Great. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Very, very excited. I didn't watch the Lions game this morning, so I'm doing even better. Yeah, yeah. I gave up pretty quick, so I'm in a much better mood. <laughs> right. I didn't let that negativity hang over me this morning. Uh, so, yeah, let's keep it positive. Let's go right into how the 2015-16 season has started for our Pistons. Uh, what a start. Just 3-0 and out of the gates. It hasn't been the prettiest basketball, but it's been winning basketball so far. I think we should take it back to the season opener and just kind of go game by game. We'll look at some of the big storylines that have come out of each of those games, and then we'll look at the season as a whole and get into the conversation we left you all with last week, which was if the Pistons have a place in the Eastern Conference playoffs. Uh, and if we go 82-0, and I think we will. So we just got to keep this up. That would help. So let's start with the Hawks game. Uh, starting on the road, first again, just back to the schedules. And I love that Stan Van Gundy during – his press conference to the media after the Atlanta game thanked the NBA commissioner's office for scheduling back-to-back the home opener uh, and starting on the road like that, because I agree. It was just a, a terrible way to start the season, but the games ended up uh, pretty going pretty well for us. Uh, so that Hawks game, what was the big takeaway from the Hawks game for each of you? Sean, I'll start with you. Uh, what did you like from that team uh, when we were you know on the road playing the Hawks to start the season? I say I'd say there's two big takeaways. The first was that the starting lineup has the possibility of being um, lights out offensively when everything's clicking, and then for the team overall, there's just a huge rebounding advantage that the Pistons have, led by Andre Drummond, but they also have quality rebounders on the wings and at point guard, and just uh, the ability to get offensive rebounds and to limit opponents to just one shot. I think that's something that you can think can carry over all year. And that was, that was essentially the reason Detroit won that game against Atlanta. Yeah. And even if I know offensive rebounds, our numbers right now are just ridiculous through three games. And even if a stat like that does regress to the mean, you're right. It's nice to see that we have players on the wings and basically at each individual position, we have a plus rebounder. And it definitely helped in that Hawks game, uh, especially with matchups like what we did to Kent Bazemore and what we were able to do on the boards, uh, Drummond having a great game to start the season. Uh, you're right. It's just really nice to see that we have a major advantage 
almost every night. I can't think of a team where I would feel uh, nervous about us losing a rebounding battle. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think not to jump ahead or anything, but uh, going against a team like Utah where you think they would at least negate Detroit's rebounding edge and Detroit still sort of force their will in rebounding against Utah and all three opponents. So, yeah, I'd really say that the rebounding edge seems like something we can look forward to going forward. Definitely. Ben, was there any negatives you took out of that opener for the start of the season? The opener? No. I I was on cloud nine the whole way through. I got a little bit nervous there in the fourth quarter. But, I mean, I think that the team played very well on both sides of the ball. Um, First half, it was kind of a tale of two halves in that the first half was really the offense that carried the day and good Mm -hmm. shooting um, across the board. And then the second half, it, it was a little more grindy. And it was really the offensive rebounding. Uh, when the shots stopped falling, the team was able to, to pick up the slack on the offensive glass and, and really hold off a team that on paper is probably a bit better on the road. And I thought that was fantastic. So, no, I mean, game one, to me, the, the team just played phenomenally, and there was nothing now there's nothing about that game that you know I would say is a big negative. I agree with you. And also, I think – I got a little nervous in the fourth quarter is something all Piston fans should just get really comfortable saying because no matter how good we look, I think those moments will continue to happen. And it just has continued so far this season as it did last. Uh, the big difference, of course, we're finding ways to grind out wins, like you're saying. And it goes into the Utah game, which I think to me just felt like a loss. It, previous Pistons teams, the last few seasons, going into a game off a of back-to-back with a team like Utah, especially the way they play defensively, I was thinking, okay, that's a loss. Start the season one and one, fine. And, and the the way we finished that fourth quarter had to, you know, just as a Pistons fan, make me feel a lot better about how the rest of the season is going to go. What did you guys think of just that Utah game and how we were able to to win that game in the fourth quarter? Well, it was ugly. It was it was not the kind of basketball, and I'll say this kind of across the board. Apart from the first half of the Atlanta game in spite of the fact that the team is winning, it's not the style of basketball I was expecting. I was expecting mm-hmm. a fast-paced, run-and-gun, offensively-driven team. And what we're getting instead is kind of this hard-nosed defensive team that's controlling the, gla- uh, the game through, through rebounding. That's not at all what I expected. And so against Utah, I think you look at the second half of the Atlanta game and it really the, the style of play kind of continued all the way through that Utah game where it, it wasn't all that great offensively, but when you look at rebounding and you look at defense, the two, the two things that I think were concerns for a whole lot of people going into the year, that's where they were able to excel. And that's really where they were able to, uh, they were able to win the game. Yeah. I would say that probably of the, of the three games, the Utah win was the most impressive uh, in my estimation, only because I don't think that you should discount just how good of a defensive team the Jazz are. They're bringing back all their major contributors. They were the best defense in the NBA after the All-Star break last year because they replaced Ennis Cantor with uh, Rudy Gobert in the starting lineup. And, I mean, just watching that team operate, you can see that they're a legit stifling defense. And uh, so my takeaway from the Utah game was really just this is Stan Van Gundy coaching in action almost. And I don't just mean the game day coaching. I mean sort of instilling sort of the right mindset in the players because I agree. 
that is a game that Detroit routinely loses. The the last second collapse, the play competitive until it really matters, and then you just wilt away. That's the Detroit basketball I'm used to the last six, seven years. And it wasn't really that against Utah. There was uh, moments where they just seemed to frankly run out of gas and you know you can expect something like that when you're on the second half of a back-to-back but uh the players didn't think they were going to lose and uh van gundy did some creative things to keep it competitive all the way through and then he put it in the right players hands and they executed at the end and came out with the win so it was it was a really impressive victory yeah definitely and you're right utah was a team going into this season just because like you said, all the success they had defensively the second half of the year, even with the injury injury to Dante Exum, there were many analysts and NBA experts who still believe the Jazz could be a team fighting for a playoff spot, mainly because of the way they played defensively. And the way that game ended, I thought that's how we were going to lose, was Utah was going to get those stops when they needed them, and they would find a way to just get themselves back in the game, and they did. And we gave them plenty of opportunities to take the lead, but we really took Utah's game away from them. And we got the stops when they need, when we needed it. Uh, and then we, of course, made the free throws when we needed to. Uh, it was nice that we kind of flipped the script on Utah. And we looked like the team that could grind it out and fight for a win at the end. And even with those few uh, continuous possessions in the fourth quarter where we turned the ball over, I think there were three straight in the last five minutes of that game, it was nice to see we were still able to stay in a game, and it was because of our defense. It wasn't, you know, praying for Brandon Jennings to hit a three, you know, so we can cut it within one. Uh, it was very different from how I felt about these teams the last few years. It was, I don't know, it just it's probably how, like, a normal fan base feels about a competent team. You know, just like how the Spurs feel or how the Hawks felt last year. Uh, we were able to win a game because we just played like the better team and didn't allow mistakes to be the reason we lost a game. It was nice. Yeah, I mean, essentially it was how I felt as a Pistons fan during the going-to-work era where you knew that the team was just supremely talented. And because they sort of caught success so early, everybody kind of deemed it as flipping the switch. Everybody was just waiting for them to start, you know, trying, and then they would execute Mm -hmm. at the end and pull out the victory. And, uh, you know, obviously this Detroit team is nowhere near that, but they know in crunch time it seems how to execute, and that's nice to see. Definitely a negative to take away from the Utah game was the loss of Joni Meeks. And in the days that followed, finding out that we'll be without Joni Meeks until... What's the story now, guys? Is it March that we'll be without Joni Meeks, potentially? I would, yeah. I mean, I think they baked in some realistic time as opposed to standard six to eight weeks. I think them saying 12 to 16, I think that's what they said. Mm-hmm. I, I, I frankly just wouldn't count on him being much of a contributor all season at this point. Which is just a shame. It, it, at first when I heard the injury and it was a Jones fracture, I was thinking of Des Bryant, who is just coming off the same injury. And I'm thinking, okay, maybe if we bring him back you know, over four to five weeks and then the news that followed the next few days, which was, of course, that it was a metatarsal bone and it was going to take more time to heal even after surgery. It's definitely a big loss, especially when we're struggling offensively. Jody Meeks at times last year, I should say that, you know, the end of last year when he, he finally looked like he had found his shot at times. He was a big part of that offense, especially for the second unit. Uh, what do you guys think? Are we going to be able to uh, replace him and, and how do the Pistons replace him? Well, it's definitely a huge loss, and I think 
as the season progresses and if the Pistons continue to be, you know, one of the better teams in the East, um, and of course there's a long way to go, but backup shooting guard is going to be a, a problem. Yeah. And I think if Pistons continue to do well and if winning in the playoffs becomes a priority, uh, then I think they're going to have to do something to address it. Um, I'm excited to see if, if Bullock can maybe carve out a niche in Detroit where he hasn't been able to otherwise. He was fantastic in the preseason. Um, I think Stanley Johnson may be able to help mitigate some of that as well, uh, maybe playing more minutes uh, at backup shooting guard than, than just small forward. But, yeah, I mean, I, I've been saying since the preseason that I think Jody Mates has an important role to play for this team this year uh, if they're going to emerge as a playoff team, which I, I think they will. Uh, and so I think either they need to look elsewhere and try to spin a trade and maybe Brandon Jennings becomes a piece where they can look to do that. Or Stanley Johnson or Bullock is really going to have to step up and contribute, especially some of that three-point shooting, which is really critical to the offensive system. I think the first shot is probably going to be taken by Bullock to see what kind of role he can carve for himself, only because he's sort of, at least in the preseason and by reputation, his primary assets are his ability as a defender and his three-point shot. And that's essentially what the team would look for in a backup shooting guard. So I think he'll get a good, sizable amount of minutes to see what he can do. And it just sort of cements Stanley Johnson further into a heavy-minute backup role, uh, splitting time between shooting guard and small forward. I think that sort of slows the train that was trying to get... Stanley Johnson inserted as the starting small forward right now and moving Marcus Morris to power forward. I think that's on hold only because I think the team needs the flexibility to be able to use Johnson at shooting guard and small forward. So I think there's players that can kind of pick up the slack somewhat that Meeks kind of left behind once he went down injured. But, uh, I mean, it is obviously a blow only because the Pistons aren't an incredibly deep team there's some question marks. There's people that can fill those roles, and we'll see if they can contribute, but there's no known contributors so much on the on the bench right now. Uh, I wanted to piggyback that question about Meeks onto a question about Stanley Johnson. And, Sean, you picked up the ball there with, is he ready for starter minutes or a larger role? And I think because of the injury now, he's going to have to be used more in the second unit. Do you expect to see him more in the two-guard spot, You know, possibly playing more minutes next to um, Marcus Morris or just playing minutes where it looks like he, he's in that two spot more than uh, at the small forward spot? I do see him playing uh, that kind of role only because I think, I think of all the non-point guards on the roster, he looks the most ready to handle the ball and somewhat initiate off the pick and roll even just as a rookie that's only played three games. I think he's sort of beyond where Catavius Caldwell-Pope is. And so I can see Van Gundy using him at, small, at shooting guard late in games, only to have somebody to take some of the pressure off of Jackson and get the offense going a little bit. And then that way he can use either Caldwell-Pope at small forward and uh, – Marcus Morris at power forward, or he can stick with Marcus Morris at small forward and use another player at power forward late in games. Ben, I was going to ask you just the play of Stanley Johnson so far. I know some fans that maybe expected more out of him at this point. Um, I've kind of noticed that in the comments of a few of the game threads. 
do we have to keep in mind that he's a rookie? Have you liked what you've seen from Stanley? What do you think so far? I have actually been very impressed by Stanley Johnson. I don't I don't think his numbers look particularly good. So I think if if he proves to be coachable, to me he's got, you know, every single skill, he's got the body to become, you know, a really really quality player. He's doing things with the basketball that you just don't see 19-year-olds do in the NBA. So if he's willing to put the work in, which, you know, everything we see as fans suggests that he is, if he's coachable, he's got a great coach who's got a proven track record of developing young players. I think he's going to be a really, really good basketball player. You know, saying all-star or something like that's way premature. But he certainly looks like he could be a, a really good player for a really long time for the Pistons. Actually, I was kind of reminded of what Dennis Schroeder was able to give Atlanta last season as a young player who has a great skill set and has a bright future but was able to give a contender something right away, I think that should be the expectation for Stanley this season is come in for minutes off the bench and give the second unit a spark because he has that ability at both ends of the floor. You're right. I think there's a chance for him this season to be just very successful because he has such great skills. And then from there, you're right. The sky's kind of the limit. It's hard to project you know what the future will hold for this kid because I'm not sure what position he'll play primarily for us or who – will be playing around him in the future. Could he be the next Jimmy Butler? Yeah, I could I could buy into an argument about that. The next Grant Hill, it would take me some time to believe that. But yeah, I think there, there's the possibility there because he is just such a tremendous talent. The one thing I would say about uh, people that are sort of ambivalent or questioning his production on the floor so far is that what you can see out of Johnson right now is that he doesn't really know what he doesn't know. So, in other words, he's making these sort of brilliant moves through the lane to get into the teeth of the defense, and he's deciding to try a really high degree of difficulty shot when instead he should be passing. And it's because probably in college, if he was able to knife through three defenders, he was going to get a good shot toward the rim. Uh, Now the shot is getting blocked or misdirected or he's just not quite finishing Uh, But he seems like with his skill set, he'll just learn from those mistakes and continue getting better. So from a skill set standpoint, I think there's nothing but great things you're seeing from Johnson, even if the production's not quite there yet. The next player I wanted to talk about similarly in just how well they've played so far, given the role they have on this team and how they've taken advantage of it is Marcus Morris. It started for me in the Utah game, and then it kind of bled into the Chicago game. So I guess which one of the two of you would like to praise Marcus Morris? I can uh, say that Marcus Morris so far is, he has been great, and maybe it's just because I'm so used to uh, Pistons players taking the kinds of shots he's taking and missing them that I sort of cringe a little bit every time he backs his player from about 20 feet in and he sort of settles in at around 16 feet, and he just puts up this off-balance shot, uh, you know, fading away, and you're just like, there's no way this shot is going to go in. Why did he do that? And then it's just pure net, and he was 10 of 15 in the Chicago game, uh, mainly on shots from the mid-post that were, you know, not the kind of shots you'd crave your team to take, but... He does, I mean, you have to give it to him. He knows what he's doing as far as establishing his position and getting the shot he wants from mid-range. 
You're right. He takes the wrong shots and he makes them. For this team and for Stan Van Gundy, it's those mid-range shots that really we try to stay away from. And the success of this team offensively has come through the fact that we primarily take a lot of threes and then we try to get into the lane and get to the free throw line. And I know the way Stan Van Gundy talked through the offseason, he built this roster to do exactly that. But Marcus Morris is a guy who just has, it seems irrational at times, but he has enough confidence in his game and especially his mid-range game that when it's on and he's in a good mood, this is a guy who can do exactly what he did against Chicago, maybe not night in and night out, but I think he can do this quite a bit for this team. Yeah, I expected him to be more of a spot-up shooter than he's been. I I didn't realize he had this mid-post sort of ISO game in his repertoire. And, you know, we talked about this last week a little bit. Outside of Reggie Jackson, who's going to initiate offense? Well, so far the answer has been Marcus Morris. And the kind of offense that he is initiating, it might not be ideal. It might not be the highest percentage shot in basketball. But it gives um, defenses something completely different to think about other than the Reggie Jackson, Andre Drummond pick and roll with three spot up shooters. And I think that in and of itself is something critical because it's something completely different that defenses have to plan for and they have to account for it because it's going to be a go-to option at some point in any given game. That's very true. Yeah. I mean, go ahead, Sean. I was just going to say, it's the kind of thing where, a mid-range game isn't necessarily a bad thing. You can there's some players that they can they're so good at it that uh, defenses have to plan around it, and that's essentially what you want. So if Marcus Morris can be a mid-range shooter in the mid to like let's say the 43 to 46 percent range from legitimate mid-range, then that's good enough for this offense because then defenses have to account for that space on the floor. And that's just going to help open up the lane even further. So absolutely. And he's also getting to the free throw line, which, you know, that's a huge asset. He's, you know, against Chicago, he only shot four for nine, but he got to the line nine times. And I, I just, I didn't expect him to be this good in these sort of isolation positions that he gets the ball. He's, he's really been fantastic. Right. You don't want to transpose sort of the skills that he has over to uh, the skills that Markeith Morris has, his twin brother. But I think it's just in, instructive only because Markeith Morris has been given much more of a shot as far as being a focal point of an offense and executing in various parts of the game. And, you can see some of the Markeith sort of skill set translating onto what Marcus is able to do in Detroit because the opportunity is there. Exactly, just because the opportunity is there. And it's great that someone like that is getting that opportunity in Detroit and is taking advantage of it. I think so many people wanted to see that with Josh Smith and for him to take the next step in his game. And that was part of his game as well. And there are almost some similarities between the the two of them, Marcus Morris and Josh Smith. And For me, it even goes to just their personality or their demeanor on the floor sometimes. But it's nice to see him engaged with his teammates and doing so well because if he is as successful this season as he's proven to be through three games, that's a huge piece for this offense and could be big if we want to be playoff contenders this season in the East. Yeah, the one thing I would say is the the only thing that worries me is that I don't want the team to get in the habit of using uh, Marcus Morris as sort of a safety valve or a, you know emergency button that they press and 
when the play totally breaks down and there's seven seconds left, they're just going to throw it to him in the post and pray that he works himself into a good position for a mid-range shot because inevitably there's going to be plenty of nights when that shot is not falling and it's sort of not fair to ask him to bail out the offense on so many possessions even though that's exactly what he's done through three games so you know it's great to see what skills he's bringing to the table and how that can affect the offense going forward but uh, obviously this offense has a long way to go overall and you know there's no reason for me not to think it's going to be firing on all cylinders at some point and they're just working the kinks out now but uh i'd like to see a lot of those marcus morris post-ups and mid-range shots you know in the flow of the offense as opposed to a last resort i agree and he definitely bailed us out against chicago he he was what was it 26 points against the bulls he had a phenomenal game and offensively we look so dead at times he he was the player you're right very little time left in the shot clock play is broken down we're going to give it to Marcus Morris in you know basically an iso situation and allow him to just you know try to find a shot and he was able to find it in Chicago that's something that I don't think we can rely on the rest of the season so I think from here I want to talk about the offense because the offense hasn't been what I expected if and I think we've talked about it, Ben, on the first the first podcast and then the second with Sean. The offense was what I expected to kind of carry this team. We had so many questions about the defense. Ben, what are you seeing from the offense and what is missing? Is there something missing from this team or is it that just the shots aren't falling? Is it something simple like that? I would point to two things that I think um, aren't, aren't working the way they ought to work. First, and we saw this last year for the first, I don't know, 10 to 20 games, um, Van Gundy seems intent on feeding Andre Drummond in the post, even though Andre Drummond is not yet a good post player. Um, he's something like two for 15 on hook shots in the paint, and that's just disastrous. He's five for 20 in the paint outside of the restricted area, and that's also disastrous. Um, we talked about sort of this Tyson Chandler trajectory or a Dwight Howard trajectory and from where I'm sitting let's just accept that Andre Drummond isn't on the Dwight Howard trajectory at least not right now the second thing I would point to is the Reggie Jackson Andre Drummond pick and roll has been mostly stifled and teams have really taken it away I was looking at a couple stats and according to the NBA's statistics Dre only has three alley-oop finishes on the season through three games contrast that with last year especially maybe the last 20 or 30 games when it was it was basically lob city in detroit so if you if you watch it reggie jackson really isn't a threat from behind the three-point line right now so teams are just diving under the drum and screen and there's really nowhere to go and there's no way to get dre free for an alley-oop and it's really hard for jackson to get to the basket off of the pick and roll so those two things are really staples of the offensive set right now and they're not working so they both need to be addressed i think with dre it's just we're not we shouldn't give him the ball so much in the post and then secondly we've got to figure out a scheme for when teams dive underneath the pick and roll what's plan b what's the second part and it's been obviously morris bailing us out but as we've talked about that we can't rely on that every single night so there's got to be a plan b out of that set that works sean can you offer a plan b is there, is, there, is there something that you see as as something that can solve this pick and roll problem? Because 
it, it just as a fan, it's something I've noticed. It's something that clearly, Ben, you're right. Teams looked at that 11-game stretch with Jackson and Drummond and found how to dissect that play because it has been non-existent. It almost seems that their chemistry has been the issue. But really, uh, and I saw it in the Chicago game, it's just teams are stopping it. We're not generating offense through the pick and roll with, with those two players specifically the way I expected. So, Sean, I'll turn it to you. Do you see an alternative? Do you see something else that can open up this offense? Well, I think there's two keys to it, and it's – the complementary players around Drummond and Jackson sort of figuring out their roles in getting open and getting to places on the floor that give them opportunities for better looks, especially I think as Contavious uh, Caldwell-Pope develops sort of when to uh, leak out for the, a perimeter shot or when to cut to an open spot on the floor toward the basket. I think that's going to do a bit to negate sort of this shutdown of the primary pick and roll option. And really it's just sort of players hitting those perimeter shots. Cause even with the, the Drummond quotient of the pick and roll setup not working, there is a lot of open three point shots that perimeter people are taking and they're just uh, not lights out at them right now. And I think as Anthony Tolliver gets a little more comfortable, you know, he's, you know, congratulations, he had a baby that made him, that uh, forced him to miss the first game. But I think his shot's been a little off as he's getting integrated into the offense. And um, so just those those complimentary bench players that can take advantage of their open looks on the perimeter, I think that'll open up the offense a little bit for Drummond and Jackson. Yeah, and I would add, um, Reggie Jackson's shooting the three pretty well so far. I'd like to see him take, you know, maybe once per half one of those open step back threes that the defenses are essentially just giving him. Because if he can make those on a semi-consistent basis, the defense isn't going to be able to just dive underneath every single pick and roll that they that the Pistons throw at them. So I can't believe I'm saying this, but I'd like to see Jackson <laughs> shoot some three-pointers at least consistently enough to make the defense uh, step up and respect it. Yeah, and another thing that I was going to mention is just that um... – Something Stan Van Gundy said in the post game a couple times is um, he actually wants Jackson to be more aggressive. And I know some people are getting frustrated by Jackson because he's holding onto the ball a lot and uh, sort of forcing, they view it as forcing things or not doing anything uh, productive with the ball. And I think what it is is he's kind of not wanting to just be the bull in a china shop toward the basket. I think he's trying to be that cerebral point guard player that knows how to get everybody involved and give everyone the ball. But a lot of his skill is predicated on his aggressiveness using his speed, strength, and size. And so I think as he gets more comfortable forcing the issue, it's going to force the defenses to react, and that's going to do a lot to open up uh, looks for perimeter players and uh, other guys as well. Yeah, and not to extend this too far, but I'd also like to see – um, some pick and rolls with either Marcus or Ilyasova because I think um, the, it really would be more of a pick and pop in that case. But defenses have to to at least pay respect to those two guys who can shoot the three, which might open it up a little bit for Jackson to to get into the paint. Where I, I think he's been pretty good. I think he's been pretty good at getting there, and that's a, a strength of his. I'd like like to see me they maybe that get thrown in a little bit as an alternative to the Drummond pick and roll. Right. Not to heap too much praise on Marcus Morris, but I'd almost be curious to see him operate in the pick and roll only because 
he could be a threat on both ends of the spectrum where right, he has right. that perimeter game and he can really use his strength and uh, ability to get to the basket as a big man. Yeah, and that's something that def- that defenses, again, because of his versatility in that way, they have to keep in mind that he can shoot, and he's had so much success so far, I'm sure teams are aware of that now, uh, but again, because of his strength and the type of player he is, he can get to the basket. So I was going to ask you guys, and this is kind of more of a big picture question, I know this week on Detroit Bad Boys, we all had to write down our prediction for the upcoming season. And I think many of the predictions we made were kind of predicated on the fact that we thought the offense was going to be noticeably better than the defense this season, uh, no matter if we thought the team was going to be have a winning record or a losing record. From what you've seen so far, and I, I hate to do this to you after three games, but I'm sure people are going to want this recorded and, and have something set in stone. Do you see the Pistons being a team this year that finds their success defensively, or are we still a team that can work out the kinks and it's the offense that will carry this team this season. So which is the strength of this team? I'd say at this point, because of how the defensive strengths have sort of shaken out as far as it being predicated on a supreme rebounding advantage, I'd say that I wouldn't be surprised if the defensive rankings were better than the offensive rankings this year for the Pistons. And that would be a very good thing because I don't anticipate the offensive rankings to be terribly low. I still think they're going to be in the top half of the league, you know, top 15, top 12 at least in offense. So if the defense is better than that, then that means we've had a really good season and uh, the Pistons are in the playoffs. Yeah, absolutely. I think I was more optimistic about the Pistons defense than a lot of people were because I have a lot of confidence in Stan Van Gundy on that side of the ball. Um, I thought they'd probably be middle of the pack, you know, 15, 16, somewhere in there. Turns out they've been better so far. We'll see if that holds up. What surprised me, though, is that the good defense hasn't generated transition offense, uh, at least not at the volume that I would have expected. That's a good point, yeah. One of the things I expected was that this team would be running every single chance they got. You look at the wings, KCP, Stanley Johnson, Marcus Morris, and really, Reggie Jackson, he's a guy who likes to go coast to coast. He's a good defensive rebounder. He likes to you know, snag the board and push you know, nonstop as hard as he can. Very little transition offense, so that's really surprised me. I do think long-term the offense is going to round into form. I think they really have to figure out how they're going to address the Drummond-Jackson pick-and-roll that hasn't worked yet. Reggie Jackson can be a very effective point guard, in my opinion, when – the offense is actually moving, and when the defense has to react to the offensive movement. If you watch the pick and roll right now, the, the two guys just dive under the screen. None of the three defenders who are guarding the perimeter have to make any sort of adjustment, so there's nowhere for anyone to go with the basketball or without the basketball. So I think if they can figure that piece out, the offense is going to get a lot better. Some of these shots are going to fall, which I think Sean pointed out. We've had some open looks that just haven't dropped. Yeah. And I think ultimately you're going to see the, the offense be slightly better than the defense. But, hey, if the Pistons stay in the top ten in defense, I'll, I'll take that too. I don't have any problem being wrong when, when it means the team is much better than I thought they'd be. Just all of this is just such a big hat tip to Stan Van Gundy because those Orlando Magic teams were so successful in part because the defense was so good. And it almost seems like... It's a matter of effort at times, longer than maybe they have in the past, or at least they just seem like they know what they're doing on that end of the floor. The defense under Stan Van Gundy just seems like these players know where they're supposed to be, and 
they give a damn. It almost just seems like that he's given them the attitude you need for defense. And I think that's so important. The fact we're even having this conversation, I think, is just, again, a huge credit to the head coach and the job he's done to improve the defense and give this team a bit of an attitude on that side of the floor. Right. I mean, if you think back to his Orlando Magic teams, he, of course, had Dwight Howard, who was a defensive player of the year. And Andre Drummond's not there yet, might never be there as a defensive player. But when you look at how his team's finished overall and you're talking about a team with Hito Tirkoli, Richard Lewis and Jameer Nelson as you know the primary contributors around Dwight his teams finished first in defensive efficiency and then the next year they were third and then the next year they were third and then the next year they were 12th in his last year when things were kind of falling apart mm-hmm. so he was he wasn't just a good defensive coach in Orlando he was building top three defenses uh with that crew so Ben's right I mean he knew how to build a system and find the players that could perform in that system. And it's it didn't happen last year. Almost nothing happened last year for a myriad reasons that, you know, that's last year. But you're really seeing him build a Stan Van Gundy team in Detroit starting this year. Yeah, and especially on the defensive side of the ball. I think you're right, Sean, to point out. You look at Richard Lewis, not a defensive stopper. Hito Turkoglu, not a defensive stopper. Yes, you've got Dwight Howard, but that roster produced more than the sum you know the, the sum of the parts was greater than the individuals so to speak and I think that's what we're seeing so far we don't have anybody who other than maybe KCP who you'd think of as any sort of lockdown defender yet that's exactly what we're doing we're locking down you know at least two of the three games really strong offenses so I think I think whatever it is that Van Gundy has and I, I can't quite pinpoint it yet uh, he's been able to instill it in this group and probably having a preseason with a, the same guys you know that he wanted on his team is helpful uh, but yeah just surprising and, and a lot of fun to watch if you enjoy defensive basketball which I definitely do right and I think you have to look to the opponents as well to kind of explain some of these offensive struggles because as I mentioned earlier you're looking at the Jazz who were probably the best defensive team in the league second half of last year uh, the Atlanta Hawks were a top five defense in the NBA last year, and they brought back most of their, you know, key components. And then the Chicago Bulls are historically a great defense now under a new coach, but they have, you know, the same defensive players there as far as Jimmy Butler and Joakim Noah and Taj Gibson that can help on that end of the floor. So I think that goes a long way also in just explaining some of these sort of not very good offensive numbers we're seeing out of Detroit. That's true. Yeah, it's, it's good to keep it in perspective like that. We have played good teams, and you're right, good defensive teams. So that could also kind of go to the woes of how this offense has started because we haven't had the easiest stretch of games for an offense to start a regular season. It hasn't probably been that easy to just find our stride because we've been playing against good defensive units. So, yeah, that's a very good point. Sean, I wanted to go back to what you had said just just a few minutes ago, that you liked what you were seeing uh, Stan Van building and it was starting this season. I know you'd had some questions about when it would start and when things would fit together and we would become a winning basketball team last week. And we were talking about in terms of the playoffs last week. So I thought we would kind of go back to that because as the season starts, for me, I'm, I'm always looking at the standings. I always want to get an idea of how the other teams are doing. And this early in the year, it's a little tough to do that. But I thought we should kind of continue that conversation with the playoffs, especially with this team playing well. It's kind of fun to have this conversation now. Uh, because, Sean, you needed some more convincing from us about Detroit being a playoff team. Is that correct? Yeah. So when you mentioned that uh, everyone kind of put in their season predictions, I think I was one of the 
very few people who said that they were not going to make the playoffs. I had them at, I think, 40 and 42 overall in just missing the playoffs, mostly because I saw some teams in the East that probably improve at a greater clip than the Pistons. And I was thinking primarily of uh, the Miami Heat, the Indiana Pacers, and the Boston Celtics. Yeah, well, I think we can probably clear the floor of a few teams in the East. Uh, Let's start at the top and talk about teams that we have as just locks for the playoffs. Uh, Maybe lock is a little strong. Okay, teams we expect to be in the playoffs in the Eastern Conference this season. Just stop me if you disagree with me. Cleveland, Chicago, Atlanta. We see those three teams making the playoffs, correct? Correct. Absolutely. After that, it's muddy enough that I actually want to jump to the bottom. Teams that we know are out of the playoffs. I have five that immediately come to mind, so that would be Philadelphia, the Knicks, the Nets, the Orlando Magic, and the Charlotte Hornets. Are there any teams in that five that you think could be in the playoff mix this year in the East? I would say no, but I know some people are more excited about the Knicks than I am. Two-in-one start. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Right. Okay. Looking okay. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they were good against us last year. It was one of the few things you can say about the Knicks last season. Also, not much of an endorsement. No, not, not much Not much of an endorsement. You could say the same about the 76ers. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. it just doesn't say much about us last season. So, really, if we take those bottom five off and the top three teams in the East off, then we're looking at seven teams fighting for five playoff spots. Those teams would be, uh, of course, the Pistons. Then you have Toronto, Miami, Washington, Milwaukee, Boston, and Indiana. So of those six, Ben, I'll turn it over to you. Are there any of those teams that you want to make an argument for are out of the playoffs of the six I just named? Yeah, I don't believe in Indiana. Uh, I really don't. Um, We started to talk a little bit about Paul George last week at the four. I realize there are offensive advantages to that. Paul George at the four is a nightmare matchup for Almost anybody. I mean, unless you have a a player of equivalent caliber, which most people don't. But I do think it creates weaknesses, first on the glass, but then secondly, on the other side of the basketball. If Paul George is a a nightmare matchup on offense, he can also be someone who can be punished on defense. So first and foremost, I would say I don't yet believe the Paul George at the four experiment. But then secondly – when I look at their roster outside of Paul George, I don't think there's a single player I would take at any position, at any depth chart, over the guys that we have on our roster. I don't think there's a single one. So I guess that's sort of a fancy way of saying I think our roster is just better than theirs. I think we have more quality players at the positions that matter. And I think our best players are probably a little better than theirs, accepting out of that Paul George, I think. Drummond is fantastic. I think Reggie Jackson is really good. And, and I think Marcus Morris is making a case that, that he's a pretty good player as well. So I just think on paper we're a better team top to bottom, and I don't believe in the Paul George experiment. Well, well I would say that one of my surprises early this year is that uh, the Indiana Pacers don't believe in the Paul George experiment either <laughs> right. because he's not playing power forward so far, even though there was all that you know um, hype about him switching positions. I'd heard sort of rumblings about it, and, you know, these box score stats aren't 100% accurate, some would think. But if you go on basketball reference and look at the positional breakdown, he's played small forward this year 99% of the time on a, on the floor. 
So apparently this, you know, Paul George power forward change the game experiment is either on hold or is is it going to happen at all? Speaking more generally about the Pacers, I'd say uh, them as well as the Boston Celtics, they're just the kind of team where you feel like they're greater than the sum of their parts. And I, I guess you could say that about the Pistons too. When you're talking about teams coached by Frank Vogel and Brad Stevens, you just feel like they have the ability to just kind of will their team just through scheming and putting their players in good positions to to win. I agree with you about Frank Vogel and the Pacers. The way they've started this season, and I'm glad that you brought up Paul George playing predominantly at small forward. Uh, I think it's very interesting that Vogel so far has decided to go with like Ian Mahinmi and you know big minutes to uh, Miles Turner and and some of the other bigs on that team over trying Paul George more at the four because so far they've really struggled. Uh, the, just last night I got to watch a little bit of that game. They lost to Utah ninety seven to seventy six and just looked completely out of sorts at both ends of the floor. Sean, I agree with you that I really believe in Frank Vogel and the job that he can do to get the most out of a roster that on paper might not look that good. But I feel like this roster is subpar enough that even a great coaching job might keep that team on the outside of the playoffs. And Ben, I feel that's kind of what you're saying, right? Yeah, and I mean, I think, look at players like Monte Ellis. I know he has a lot of fans, but to me, he he can be a net negative a lot of the time. And he's going to be playing a lot of minutes and taking a lot of shots. And I look at their roster top to bottom, I just don't think it's as good as ours. I think on paper, we should be the better team and should beat them out, you know, if it's between the two of us for the, you know, seventh or eighth seed. So would you say his 31% efficient field goal percentage is a net negative this year? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's pretty great, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so maybe maybe you're right about the Pacers, and I was a little high on them for no reason. But obviously it's early in the year. We'll see how it shakes out. It's actually that tees up a good, you know, game for the Pistons. Their next one is on Tuesday against the Pacers. That'll be the first time they're not playing ostensibly a heavy playoff contender and somebody more on their level, quote unquote. So to see how they match up against them, you know, if they can just bury the Pacers, that would that would make me feel pretty good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then that would also mean the the Pistons starting four and zero and the Pacers starting zero and four. Uh, it would be the first of four matchups, but still, you're right. I want to see how they look against a team that is supposed to be just fighting for a playoff spot in the East because I think it's a great test for the Pistons. They've definitely played up to their competition so far, but you're right. How do they do against, you know, not the bottom of the East, but some of those teams in the middle tier to bottom of the East because we struggled so much with those teams, uh, Boston, Indiana, Philly, and New York, like we talked about. Uh, so, Sean, I guess we'll go to the other side of it. Of those teams that I named that were in the, the middle of the East fighting for a playoff spot, uh, if we have Indiana out, that takes one more team off the board. Is there a team you have in, maybe a team ahead of the Pistons? Well, I came into the year as a, a firm skeptic of the Miami Heat, not because I didn't think they would be competitive for a playoff spot, but I just saw a lot of people putting the Heat in maybe the four and five seat of the East, and I didn't see it necessarily. But, man, they've looked really good so far this young season. And it's sort of like, oh, okay, so maybe they are really good. Because I believe they're in the midst of just burying, yep, they beat, uh, as we record this, 
they had an epic comeback against the Rockets and beat them by 20. So I think, you know, the Rockets are winless this year. That's sort of a sign that sample size is still small and take yes. everything with a little bit of a grain of salt because I think everyone thinks the Rockets are an actual good team. But, yeah, the fact that they were just able to bludgeon the Rockets uh, to go to 3-1 and one on the year, I'd say they're a, they're a pretty good bet to make the playoffs this year too. Ben, your thoughts on the Heat? It all depends on Dwayne Wade. I mean, he's played, looking back at the last several seasons, 62 games, 53 games, 69 games, 49 games. In a long history of being injured. If he stays healthy and plays more than 70 games and plays like he's capable of playing, the Heat could very well make the playoffs. If he plays 45 games or 50 games, I look at that roster and I, I see a lot of holes that Dwayne Wade creates if he's absent. So, yeah, I would say Miami is someone we, we definitely have to be concerned about. I think they could maybe get up to the five or six seed if they stay really healthy. But Wade's a huge injury risk, and I think even Chris Boston extent too. There's some concern about that. So, I think ultimately, 34 year old Dwayne Wade. It, it comes down to that for Miami, at least for me. Mm-hmm. And I actually, I usually just simplify that question now with Dwayne Wade. And for me, the question is, how good are the 55 games that Dwayne Wade will give you for a yeah. given season? And last year, it just wasn't enough. When he was on the floor, it just wasn't enough to to get the Heat, uh, in you know, really into the into the playoffs or being a contender in the East. I think they look good so far. Definitely, there are still things about that roster that just seem kind of strange to me, and I think it will take some time to figure it out. But Eric Spolster has has proven that he can work with figuring out rotations quickly and and finding where you know the offense can be generated. Uh, although the Goran Dragic experiment so far, we haven't seen a lot of minutes with. Wade, Bosch, Dragic, and uh, Whiteside. But I'm interested how those four especially work together because I think it could be very good or I think it could be kind of a mess uh, as you know Wade and, and Dragic f- figure out how to work with each other in the backcourt. Yeah, I'd say the one advantage Miami has is that when Wade inevitably misses some time, you know, those 10, 15, 20 games, uh, Dragic is in a place with his skill set to basically – take the reins of the offense and do a lot of things that Wade was going to do on the floor. He can sort of pick up that slack and create offensively and sort of be the focal point and have the ball in his hands essentially all the time and dictate how everything goes. So, you know, Dragic might not be a superstar or a star player when Wade is healthy and contributing, but if there is a time that Wade goes down, I think you might see Dragic step his game up a little bit and sort of put the team on his back a little more. At this point, I'd say they're in. Okay. Oh, that's that's fair. That's a better way of doing it. So you have the Heat in, and Ben, do you have the Heat in or out of the playoffs in the East? I have them in if they're healthy. So they're healthy right now. So, yeah, let's say they're in. Yeah, three games three games, and they're pretty healthy so far. But <laughs> good for them. Yeah, exactly. Uh, when you guys did your uh, preseason predictions, did you look at the East as a whole when you were putting together that, uh, that Pistons uh, record? Did you have an idea of what teams would be in in the East? I was going to say, I, I sort of looked at who I thought would be in and who would be out, and I was thinking the Heat are going to be in, the Pacers are going to be in, and so that leaves, uh, you know, I think the Nets obviously are out. So then that means, you know, what's going to happen with the Bucks? If the Bucks are in, then the Pistons are not. And if the Bucks are out, then it makes it that much easier. For, for Detroit. And so far, the Bucks have 
basically, you know, they're not healthy right now. So true. But sort of the things that I worried about for the Bucks have kind of come to fruition this far in the young season, just because uh, their offense is just. I mean, it's kind of not pretty right now. The Bucks. Despite despite the efforts of Greg Monroe, and actually when I was on Twitter complimenting his great game, every every Greg Monroe hater, and I don't know why there are so many out there on the internet, but pointed out that he only played great in a losing effort, and I just wanted to punch my computer screen. I'm sorry, but I was about to say the same thing. That oh, you God. hate to say Greg Monroe, that that nickname that he is he has found for himself, that moniker is just in a losing effort. Greg Monroe with 14 and 12. It, it's nothing against him, and definitely Milwaukee right now. You're right. It's everything around him. It's going to take some time for that offense to work together, and it's not helping, like you said, that they're not healthy. Milwaukee's a team, and Ben, I'll, I'll bring you into this, that I think I'm not quite as high as a lot of people who you know loved what the Bucks did last season. In part because I remember the second half of the year and, and the Bucks being you know basically a pedestrian team the second half of the season. But even with the addition of Greg Monroe, I see that as being a team we'll be competing with in the East. What do you think, Ben? Yeah, I think they have a lot of really interesting pieces that don't fit together all that well. Mm-hmm. I think they upgraded their talent base a little bit in terms of adding Greg Monroe. I think Greg Monroe is an all-star player this year. I think he's, I think he's that quality of a player. Um, but I think they have to get a new point guard. I don't think Carter Williams is the answer for that roster, and they don't have any floor space, um, which has led to pretty ugly offensive output. So yeah, one they got to get healthy. Two, I think they're going to have to add some shooters. Whether they try to do that this season and make a push for the playoffs or whether they're playing a more long-term game, whether they're thinking they can do that next summer or the year after, that roster is not going to look the same as it does now a year from now. I'd be shocked if it did. So, Hmm. yeah, I think overall, really nice pieces don't fit. I expect them to be fighting fighting for the playoffs, especially if they make a change or two. And I'll just say, I think what we're saying is sort of a conventional reading of Milwaukee. Uh, I kind of agree with Ben. I'm not a Mark. Michael Carter Williams guy and I thought they would struggle on offense and you know probably maintain their stellar defense however uh, as Ben was talking I just wanted to kind of check where they're at somehow and they didn't count tonight's game yet where they lost but they had a very good 107.4 offensive efficiency and they are dead last in the NBA in defensive efficiency so I'm not quite sure what's going on with them and who's kind of dropping the ball here but uh they're definitely a weird team and a team to watch out for. Even if they take a step back, I think they'll be competitive and competing for a final roster spot. So we'll just see how it shakes out, I guess. Defensively, it's obviously Greg Monroe's fault because we all know Greg <laughs> ben, Monroe is a don't defense. feed this. <laughs> I can't take it anymore. My heart cannot take this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's a real question. Is, is that defense in Milwaukee, and it's not just Greg Monroe, so it, it's not fair to just put it on him, but having... Michael Carter-Williams, Jabari Parker now, and Greg Monroe, I think that team had to expect that they wouldn't be as good on the defensive end, right? Well, Carter-Williams, I think, had a reputation as a defender, but you're right. Jabari Parker and Greg Monroe are definitely seen as offensive contributors pretty much only, and uh, defensive negatives that the team thought they would be able to hide behind their stellar, you know, hyperactive wing defenders in uh, Giannis and Chris Middleton. 
So we'll we'll see what happens. So that leaves Boston. The Celtics is one of the few teams that we have competing with the Pistons in terms of positioning in the East. Uh, they were, of course, a surprise playoff team, a surprise team the second half of the season. Sean, I'll start with you. Do you have Boston as a playoff team and then just your reasons why or why not? I had them as a playoff team, and we'll see how it shakes out. I don't have a great read. The only reason I presumed that they would make the playoffs is because I think the numbers are sort of smarter than my intuition, and pretty much every advanced statistical model is a a fan of the Boston Celtics is currently constructed, and they also have who I think is one of the best coaches in the league in Brad Stevens, uh, who's able to sort of work with what he has to make things fit and make the offense and defense function. So I would say that they're still pretty uh, heavy favorites to make the playoffs or compete for a playoff spot, even if there's nobody that jumps out at you as being a superstar contributor. That's the truth. It's computers love them and humans hate them. And if you're a fan of advanced stats, you probably find yourself as someone who likes the Boston Celtics and the type of basketball that they play. But if you're someone who kind of believes in the eye test and, you know, looking at the the players they have and who's their starting five. And not that I want to say that's a bad argument to make in the NBA, but uh, I definitely believe more in the Boston Celtics than some. But it is tough to look at that roster and, and figure out how they're going to win more than 35 games this season when David Lee and company. And I, I don't know who. Really, it starts with what's the first name you say when you think of the Boston Celtics this season? Is it six-man Isaiah Thomas? Is it you know the player they brought in, David Lee? I, I'm, I'm not sure who the who the go-to is in in Boston. Well, I've already always been a firm believer that Isaiah Thomas is is more than a six-man because of everything he can do offensively. So I I think of Isaiah Thomas, I think of Marcus Smart, and I think of Avery Bradley as you know a great wing trio that can do a lot of good things on the basketball court well I don't think I can ever say that I actually like a Celtics team I think that would be some sort of treason and I'd have to turn my fan card in that's right sacrilegious to do so (laughs) but I actually do I'm an advanced dance guy I believe in the eye test too but because I'm a stats guy I I am really intrigued by the Celtics I think they're an interesting case study and can the, the the whole be greater than the sum of the parts and yeah, I think they they're going to be one of four teams, and I, I count the Pistons in this four teams fighting for um, seven and eight for the playoffs. They've got a real chance. And those four: Detroit, Milwaukee, is it my Boston and Miami? Are those the four that you have? Uh, I would put Washington in there because I think um, I'm I'm not a huge believer in Washington, mm-hmm. and I would put Miami and Toronto in the playoffs if Miami stays healthy. I would say. Washington would be my fourth piece in that equation. I agree with you, and I actually have Toronto and Miami when I kind of projected the Eastern Conference as the four and five seed. Uh, So you're right, then it kind of brings Washington into that discussion as well. I'm not a huge believer in John Wall. I think he's a good player, not a great player. Um, I'm not a huge believer in Bradley Beal. And I think their bigs are getting old. I like all of their bigs, but they're Mm -hmm. getting old. And injuries could be a real problem for them. Um, so I, I also think that losing Paul Pierce hurts them a lot more than maybe the numbers would suggest because he was really their guy when it counted, and I think losing him hurts. 
So now that we've kind of looked at the teams the Pistons will be fighting with uh, in the Eastern Conference to get into the playoffs, Sean, how do you feel? Do you feel you know a little more confident about the uh, postseason uh, post future for the Pistons, or do you still kind of be- believe what you did just days ago, really? It was just a week ago when those predictions were posted. So do you stick by your predictions of the Pistons being outside the playoffs, or do you feel more confident in the team now? I would say I feel more confident only because of – not just that the Pistons are 3-0, but it's the way that they're winning. It's that they're winning on the backs of their defense, and defense in ways that we could think would carry forward the rest of the year. It's not just getting an abnormal amount of steals or other teams missing a huge amount of good open looks. It's the fact that they're holding teams to pretty you know mediocre efficiency numbers but then just rebounding the hell out of the ball so that if uh they if another team misses a shot they don't get a second and it's leading to more wins for the pistons and i think that's going to carry through for the whole season so i would say that i'm actually much more confident that the pistons are going to be better than the 38 or the 40 win team than i thought you know before the season started That's great. Just a few more news and notes around the NBA. A few things I want to touch on quickly. The Pistons announced this week that they will be retiring the jerseys for Ben Wallace and Chauncey Billups, one and three going into the rafters. What do you guys think of that move? I think it makes perfect sense. Those were the two greatest players of the going-to-work Pistons, and they definitely deserve to have their jerseys retired. Totally agree. Chauncey made the offense go. Big Ben made the defense go. Hang them up and... uh, honor those two guys who who were really the two best players of that team. And then it also fires up the Detroit Bad Boys forum debate that constantly happens about how important Richard Hamilton was to those teams. So I think it's important that he his 32 was left off the table uh, for right now, uh, just so that those uh, conversations and debates can continue. And just another uh, something I would just want to say, the basketball community, especially people like us that do something like this, we lost a site that had become very important to me over the last few years, Grantland.com, being shut down oh, just a few days ago. That was a source for me, and also one of the ways I got really involved and became a fan of advanced statistics. Uh, definitely a loss for for basketball fans and for people who like that type of coverage uh, of uh, the game of basketball. Hopefully, even though we've lost the site, we won't lose those voices. Hopefully, all those people stay involved in the online community and will continue to benefit from the great work that they do. Yeah, I mean, one of the best things I ever read was something Zach Lowe wrote about the Toronto Raptors using uh, the camera, the in-camera system to monitor everybody's spot on the floor. If you have never read it, please Google around and find it in the Grantland archives because it's it's a really great piece that only s- sort of uh, a writer in a position at a place like Grantland with sort of the the youth of Zach Lowe and the editorial freedom to explore such a weird topic could unearth. It's sort of those gems that I'll probably miss the most. Of course, fingers crossed in thinking that uh, Zach Lowe has a spot at ESPN going forward or says, you know, see you later and goes somewhere even better. Potentially linking up with his former boss, Bill Simmons at HBO. I know that that's been the big talk, but you're right. Having that sort of freedom, just uh, what it yielded was, was so great. And it gave uh, so many of us quite a bit of entertainment and also a lot of great information. Just a quick shout out to Diffuse Radio Network and DiffuseRadioNetwork.com. Thank you for all the support. 
and for allowing us to use the studio sitting across from me right now, running the board, Andre Douglas, who joined us during the first show. Uh, it's been very nice to add a professional touch, and that's what Diffuse Radio Network has, uh, has done for us. Anything you guys want to mention before we go? Shout out to Andre Drummond and his 58% free throw percentage. I'll say shout out to Andre Drummond's sub 40% field goal percentage. And if uh, his field goal percentage is lower than his free throw percentage, then I'd get pretty worried about this year. But we'll see how things shake out. But shout out to those missed field goals for helping his offensive rebounding totals. Yeah, so, it's all a vast tapestry of Andre Drummond awesomeness. So. It all it all comes full circle, and we hope you do the same. Uh, thank you so much for listening, and we hope you come right back and listen to next Monday's episode when we bring you another edition of the Detroit Bad Boys podcast.